0: Tonight, I want to talk about what I call a kind of nuts and bolts talk. Basically, I want to talk about mindfulness, the quality of it, so we get a feel for what this energy of mindfulness actually is and how it works. As Christina spoke of last night, so eloquently, our path as human beings, our path of awakening, is one that leads to harmony, to a sense of stillness, to peace, to real freedom from conflict. And if that's the path of our awakening, which it is, it's our potential as human beings. And as it's right here, in this moment, this very moment, nowhere else, nowhere to go look for, nothing else to try and get, but if it's right here, in this moment. How come that's not our experience? I mean, what's going on? How come when we come to practice this practice with various ideas about what we're going to get, but overall for most of us, we come with a strong intention, a strong commitment to open, to understand, to open our heart. We have to have a strong intention or commitment or we wouldn't get through nine days of this. And so we're coming with this belief in our potential and the commitment to investigate and open and we sit down and what happens? You know the mind's all over, we're attacked by the hindrances, we're lost in restlessness and knee pain, our thoughts are flying every which way. And for many the experience is definitely not one of harmony and to think that If this is a path of harmony, how come after two days you can feel in less harmony than you felt for the last six months of your life? You know, what's going on? And how does mindfulness work? I mean, how is it that sitting and being present with the breath, being present with a pain in the knee, being present with the sound of the buzzsaw, How does this help us see through this false idea of separation, of conflict, that we seem to be living under? How does being present with the breath, for example, help to bring us out of confusion? So what is mindfulness? Vipassana meditation, translated loosely as insight, Actually, one of the translations of it means just to see things as they are, simply that. The key tool to seeing things as they are, to knowing things as they are, is this quality of mindfulness that we're cultivating. So the practice, it's not to become different. From how we are. We're not trying to somehow change ourselves around to become perfect beings. We're not trying to achieve a certain mental state, a certain set of experiences, or get to some plane where there will be peace and then we stay there and that's it. It's, it's not about that at all, but it's to open deeply to know fully, to the truth that is always here, already, right here, right now, nowhere else. And this is what mindfulness can help us do. Mindfulness, we often loosely um, use the synonym of awareness for mindfulness. But this quality of mindfulness is actually much more specific than a vague, general sort of awareness. You know, like we can say, well, I'm aware that I'm sitting here and I've been thinking for 10 minutes. I mean, if you asked me where I was, I would be able to say, yeah, I'm here in this room. There's an awareness. But mindfulness is much more specific. It's, It's much richer than this kind of vague, overall awareness. It's a quality of total attention, giving one's total heart and mind to whatever is present in our experience at this moment. It's a quality of attention that is not fragmented in any way. And it's this total commitment to being present to whatever's happening in this moment that allows for our seeing through our mind created confusion about what's really going on. This total commitment. This is a quotation from Krishnamurti that I really love that to me expresses this quality. When you look totally you will give your whole attention your whole being everything of yourself your eyes your ears, your nerves. You will attend with complete self-abandonment. And then there is no room for fear, no room for conflict, no room for contradiction. It's this quality of total attention. When we all have moments of that, when there's a moment that your attention is totally with a breath, say, it could be anything, but when you're totally with the breath, in that moment there isn't a sense of conflict, there's really no problem. It doesn't matter how the breath is, the attention is completely unified, our being is completely unified around this sensation of tautness, for example, in that there's no conflict, there's peace. So why is it so rare in our experience? Why do we seem to struggle so? Because it's not really so esoteric, just being present for a sensation of the breath. So what's the struggle? There's strong tendencies in our mind. It's like a deeply ingrained habit, groove that our minds tend to run into. That if there's something pleasant or pleasurable in our experience, we move toward it. Either mental, just kind of wanting it, or physically if we can. If it's unpleasant, painful, fearful, just a little uncomfortable, the tendency of mind is back off, get away, avoid, deny. If it's kind of neutral, we tend to not even notice it kind of space out. And the third fourth tendency really is the one that we call that tendency to identify with any particular aspect of our experience as being me, as being some unchanging permanent entity that's me. And this all of these tendencies are very strongly conditioned. So when you start to look at what we're identifying with as me, in one moment it's the body, a particular pain, oh my knee, I'm really going to hurt myself. Next moment I'm feeling so restless, this is really unpleasant, I don't like being like this. And the next moment that's forgotten and there's a nice smell, but well, I'm really hungry, I'm just starving, I'll never make it to lunch. And just start to notice how many different me's have there been just in the course of today. And each one, when it's unexamined, we think, oh, this this is me, this is real, this is lasting. And when it goes, we kind of don't notice it because the next one's real, it's lasting, it's going to stay. Very deeply ingrained tendency. Now, when these tendencies are operating and we're not aware of them, and that's the key, when we're not examining them, we don't know they're operating They filter our whole experience. It's like we're looking through the tendency to identify, or we're looking through the way the mind pushes away from something unpleasant. We don't know that's there, and that's how we interpret reality. We think we're perceiving accurately, but we're not, because we don't know in a certain moment, if we're not paying attention, that these filters are operating on our consciousness They're so deeply ingrained that, for for example, difficult or unpleasant situations, when we're sitting here, just a little one, a pain in the knee or restlessness, something mild, and I'm talking about really intense suffering. It's so deeply ingrained that the mind moves away that just without thinking about it, we'll interpret something that's difficult or unpleasant as being wrong. You know, I'm doing something wrong because it doesn't feel good. And then this situation becomes an obstacle. Well, if this pain in my knee goes away, then I could pay attention. Then I could be meditating. If I wasn't restless, then I could start meditating. After lunch, I won't be hungry anymore. And that's when my meditation will be good. You know, we notice, well, after lunch, you're not hungry, but you're sleepy and tired. So just before tea, Maybe that hour, you know, then it'll be okay to meditate and and now I'll just stick it out, you know, or get up and walk. The paradox that we don't see if we're not aware of this tendency is that when we quit trying to run away from this, this difficulty and actually give it our total full attention, it often ceases to be a problem. If there's a slight pain in the knee, and we're really fighting it, you turn your full attention to it, total attention, and suddenly, you're just with it. In that moment, it's not a problem. It's an unpleasant sensation in the knee. It's not a big deal. The only difference is our attitude, is this willingness to be totally present without fighting or resisting what's going on. But because we're so kind of conditioned or trained not to be aware that we're fighting what's happening, our perception of our experience can tend to be really skewed. In other words, we have a kind of selective presence. We're present for certain aspects of our experience, and we're just totally not present for others. And this can even operate on a very unconscious level. We don't even know we're not present. My favorite uh, example that really helped me to see how this works is some experiments that were detailed in a book called Vital Lies, Simple Truths by a psychologist called Danny Goldman who's done Vipassana for years. And these experiments show ways that our mind can block out perceiving stimuli that are perceived as potentially anxiety-provoking. Or painful. I mean, it's not like we consciously say, I don't want to pay attention to that, but it doesn't even make it into the point where we're aware of having a conscious choice. So he starts with a physical example of a description of a man, I think it was Livingston, Stanley and Livingston, who at one point in his African adventures was being chewed on by a lion. And he remained conscious through this. He obviously lived through it because he wrote about it. I don't think he was writing at the time. And what he noticed was that he was conscious, and he was not conscious of pain. Now, obviously, the body was being really hurt, but that there was some kind of sensory blocking that kept the awareness of pain from making it through to his consciousness. And this could probably be seen as uh, a life-supporting uh, factor of, of the human mind and body, because, it, you know, it would keep you able, you know, when you get superhuman energy in a, in a moment of crisis. But they went on to do these experiments that this same function is operating in ways that are totally not helpful or especially useful, but what was perceived as threatening to life as, as real pain is now stimuli that our, our mind somehow sees as anxiety-provoking. And so they did this minor little experiment where they had a bunch of subjects and they showed them several different pictures. And all they had to do was look at the picture and then later remember and describe what had been in each of the pictures, drawings. And they had some kind of way, I don't know how they do this, but some kind of way of measuring where the eyeball looked. So they not only had what the person remembered, but actually they could could measure where in the picture they had looked. And so the pictures would, would be um, just normal, like a, a man sitting reading a newspaper, and then something that for certain people might provoke anxiety, like one would have a, a really sexually suggestive thing, and then a guy sitting reading a newspaper, two pieces that didn't go together at all. And they could measure where these subjects' eyes looked. And they found that, this, that's the particular one I remember, but there were several different subjects that could provoke anxiety. And they found that in the people who, for for instance, the sexually suggestive one provoked anxiety, that when they went to to say what the pictures were, they didn't even remember that part. They remembered a picture of a man reading a newspaper. And even more weird is they could measure that somehow they kept their eye from even looking at the part of the picture that would somehow provoke anxiety. And it's fascinating to me. So there's a way that we have of blocking that which is potentially unpleasant in our experience. And there's times when this is also necessary perhaps for survival. Like many instances of of young children who have been really mistreated or abused and if they were to remember that and have to stay in the same situation you know it would be almost impossible. And so that That memory is gone, I mean really gone, until it can be retrieved, you know, decades later. But often in our experience, this is is not necessary. And what we're doing is having this really skewed experience of reality. So that's how the mind moving away from the unpleasant filters our perception. It's the same with the tendency of the mind to move toward the pleasant. They did another um, experiment. This is kind of how when there's something you're you're fixated on, something you want, it gives you tunnel vision. You see what you're looking to see and nothing else. So they had a short video of a basketball game, a real fast one, balls flying back and forth, and the subjects were instructed to count and report how many times the ball was passed. So that was their job and they did it. In the middle of this video, this woman dressed in white with a white parasol, kind of ambled across the middle of the basketball court. Nobody doing the experiment mentioned this at the end of the experiment. And when they were asked about it, they couldn't believe it had happened. And, you know, if you went back and looked again, you'd never be able to miss it. But it's it's, it's, the, it's the kind of how when we're looking for something we think is lost and it's staring us in the face because we think it's lost, we can't see it. So what our expectations skew what we perceive. They skew our experience of reality. This is what we call delusion. This is the confusion of mind. And because we have these blind spots in our experience of reality, these blind spots that are brought about through our not seeing the tendencies of mind to go towards the pleasant, away from the unpleasant, space out if it's not interesting enough, identify with things. We're not seeing, we we don't know what's actually going on if we don't pay attention. You know, it's how we stay out of touch with reality. It's why we feel that there's this weird sense of separation and fragmentation and we can't figure it out. I think it's one of the reasons that the Buddha said, you know, everyone wants to be happy. All people are doing is is trying to find love and happiness, but we keep doing it in ways that increase our confusion and our suffering because we don't really see clearly. Can't see what's happening. This fascinates me, just how this works, this skewed perception. Now, as long as these filters on our experience are operating without our knowing it and without our understanding, we continue to act and feel confused, separated. So, this is where the power of mindfulness comes in. Wisdom. Understanding just what really is. It arises with our ability to be fully, totally present with just what is in any moment. That ability to be fully and totally present without conflict is what enables us to know and experience clearly for just what it is. Because when we're with it without resistance without expectation, nothing to protect, just there with it, open, vulnerable, can really be with you, see what it really is. So this quality of mindfulness, this total presence, as we cultivate it, the light of awareness begins more and more to shine equally on anything that arises in our experience. You know, we start to be less discriminating. We're not so selective. It's more things start to come up into our awareness and we're fully with whatever it is, without this unconscious toing and froing. And this includes beginning to be aware even of these filters, even of the movement of the mind of wanting, the movement of the mind of resisting, and aware of that energy of identification. So as experiences that have been fearful or unattended to in our our life, in our experience, they begin to be received with attention. And because of that, we're not so driven to deny the painful. We're not so driven to only seek out the pleasant and suffer so much when we can't have it. And it's this drive, this drive towards the pleasant and away from the unpleasant, that is the source of our conflict. It's not the experiences themselves. It's our drive to deny and to cling. That's the source of our conflict. And with this mindfulness that begins to shine equal light on whatever arises, this to and froing of the mind begins to cease there's moments when it isn't happening there's moments that when this to and froing of the heart and mind isn't going on the stillness of heart the peace that what we really are is is able to shine forth it's not like we're going somewhere else but just this toing and froing stops for a second and there can be this sense of real peace of harmony and you know that's really our true nature and on retreats or off retreats i think probably all of us have, have have had moments of experience of this i can think back to many times and it tends to happen more on retreat because like i'm practicing being mindful where there's just a moment of exquisite beauty and if you were describing it later you go, well this was the sunset it was so exquisite or the way the shadow filters through the leaves in a tree, you know, or a flower, or the way a certain person was walking, it could a sip of tea, a step in walking meditation. You know, there's these moments of exquisite stillness and beauty. It's not that suddenly this tree is the most magnificent tree that ever existed in on the face of the earth or that this step was some kind of really special step. I mean, what's going on is that those filters of wanting and pushing away and identification aren't active in that moment. And so there's this real sense of connection, of harmony, of peace. It's not that the experience itself is so different. And if we went back and tried to recreate, let me just drink this tea in the same way and have this sip again, you know. and. It doesn't do it. Because why? Because the mind's wanting like crazy. Forget it, it'll never do it. Uh, but it's nothing so esoteric, you know? It's a moment of the mind and heart being fully connected and present without this toing and froing. So these tendencies of wanting, aversion pushing away, confusion, identification. Yeah, they're really deep and strong. They arise really often, and that's part of what's happening when we sit, and you sit down, and you're lost in aversion, and you're lost in restlessness, and the mind's all over the shop. You're starting to see what's going on. When we're not paying attention, we just often don't see it on such a subtle level. So they're deep and they're strong, and they're also impermanent. They come and they go. It's not our intrinsic nature. If it were, you know, we'd be wasting our time here. And something the Buddhist often said, which lately has been inspiring me a lot, when he would talk about working for freedom from suffering and purifying the mind, in other words, moving so that we're not so caught in greed and aversion and delusion. He'd say, if it weren't possible, I wouldn't tell you to do it. And that inspires me a lot. So when we're willing to bring our full energy, our commitment, our attention, to whatever's happening now, a pain, the breath, we start to see that what we assume to be so in a particular moment isn't necessarily true at all. Thich Nhat Hanh, who's a a Zen master, Vietnamese Zen master, poet, peace activist, um, I quote him a lot. He says that in order to have a correct perception of reality, we need to have a direct encounter with what's happening. Pretty straightforward. That's what mindfulness is giving us, a direct encounter right now with this moment. All right, so what are some qualities, actually energetic qualities of mindfulness that we can experience when we're being mindful? And even as I talk, if you kind of have a sense of it, feeling it in yourself, not just taking it in intellectually, it's helpful. So mindfulness is a real alert, total attention, and at the same time, it's relaxed. It's an alert attention that doesn't come from a driving force. It comes rather from interest. An attention that springs from interest is quite natural, quite connected. And we're all capable of really strong interest. And sometimes you think, well, yeah, the breath. It's not that interesting. You know, how can I bring interest to it? But first, to know that you're capable of, in, of really strong interest helps a lot. And this is my current favorite example. I can only use it a couple more times this year. In January, I was in San Francisco during the Super Bowl time. And I know quite a few people in San Francisco. And every single person that I knew or knew of was glued to their television set during the three hours of this of this match I and mean, the city kind of stopped. It was quite amazing. And watching it with people, the quality of interest on that especially the first half on that game, was amazing. No move went undiscerned that the quarterback did or that the special wide receiver. They were all San Francisco fans, so they really... It was amazing. And this is... wide, broad spectrum of people were all quite capable of this really connected, total attention. I mean, no sound, nothing else would go on. When the commercial came, it was all, you know, completely gone. As soon as the commercial ended, boom. It It was fascinating. So if we can do this with a football game, you know, we can bring the Super Bowl mind to our life process, you know, and we might think that breath is boring but really our life process is a lot more ultimately interesting than a football game i mean i hope and if we think the breath is boring think about what it's like when you have a really bad cold you know then suddenly you're really fascinated with the breath or if you have the potential of lung disease i just had to have a pulmonary test and just they have these incredible contraptions and I thought, My God, you know, there's so much just it just tuned me into how much could go wrong with the lungs and what that would be like, not to be able to breathe freely. It's really pretty interesting, the breath. It's worth my attention. So we can bring this quality, the Super Bowl mind, to whatever's happening in our life process. It's worth it. Mindfulness has other qualities. Actually, what I'm talking about the attention with the Super Bowl is not complete mindfulness because it has a quality, that had a quality of wanting a certain result, looking for a certain thing to happen. I mean, the people definitely wanted San Francisco to win. It was like, oh, well, whoever catches the ball, that'll be interesting. So that quality is not mindfulness. The total attention is. But mindfulness is relaxed totally non-manipulative, non-violent, not looking for any result, no expectation. So we bring that same quality of attention, but with no expectation of any result, simply because this is the experience of our mind and body in this moment. This is life right now. It's almost attention with a spirit of loving-kindness of metta, towards whatever it is that's arising. Towards one sense of oneself, towards the emotion that's arising, if it's sadness, towards a pain, towards a sound, towards feeling hot, it doesn't matter. It's an attention that's alert but with a real loving spaciousness of mind. Trying to give different images. An image that helps me a lot with this sense is Uh, on an evening uh, just when the moon's rising with a star. I remember this image real clearly. And there's such a sense of the space around that really holding and cradling, say, the moon and the star. And it's that sense of complete spaciousness allowing whatever we're to come into that space. There's no sense of, well, the star's in the way, it's not in well, the right relationship to the moon, they should change. But a total spacious acceptance whatever comes in it's fine, it's held, it's cradled, it goes out, that's fine. Very loving, spacious, total presence with whatever arises. And in this, the whole range of experiences comes and goes. And we're just totally present for each one. So, for example, here in retreat, if we think we know what good practice feels like or looks like, or we have some idea of what it is we're wanting, you know, to get or do, and we don't notice that, it makes it really hard to have this sense of openness and cradling for experiences that come along that don't match our idea, or our expectation. And then again, right away, we're in conflict. Right away, we're in struggle. If there's no special thing to happen, but we're just fully meeting whatever arises with kindness, with spaciousness, with attention, there's not a problem. And then we can see more likely, what's really going on. And so this spacious, non-judging quality of mindfulness is what allows for the next aspect. And even though I'm saying this like sequentially, you realize this is all going on at once. It's just to talk about things, we have to separate it and break them out. But in this non-judging, spacious presence, and alertness, it allows us to know the actual bare experience of a moment as opposed to all our ideas about it, our interpretations about it, our concepts about it. It lets us tell the difference between what's actually going on and what we're thinking about and constructing on top of that. This is how we see directly without the veil of interpretation. I mean, we all know the difference, but often our interpretations and concepts are so subtly tied into the experience that we get all caught up and intertwined and we can't really tell the difference. A a real simple example, if you're going on with the breathing and your breath turns out to be really tight and rigid and controlling and you start to think, God... This is just what I'm like. I'm such a rigid, controlled, uptight person. And each breath, this just gets stronger until each breath is a torment. Each breath is a further proof of what a a totally horrible person you are. This is a real example of we're confusing our actual experience with all our interpretations. Bring the energy of mindfulness to the experience, and what is it? Well, on the in-breath, it's really tight and constricted. That's the experience. Tightness and constriction. And then there's a thought. Oh, I'm such a rigid, uptight person. That's a thought. It might or might not be true, but in the moment the experience is simply one of tightness, constriction, and then this judging thought. When we can bring this total attention to it, it's It's much easier to be with the actuality Oh, tightness and constriction. Yeah, that's tightness and constriction. That's okay. Oh, and I'm really judging that. Okay. Just simply seeing what is and not confusing our interpretations for the actual experience. It doesn't mean we chuck out all concepts or all interpretations. Of course, they're often helpful but knowing it for what it is and knowing what we're actually experiencing for what it is. And this comes about through the power of mindful attention through simply being present again and again and again without judging. So the more we learn to be present moment by moment, and that's why we just be with the breath be with the lifting of the foot be with the pain in the knee be with the sound what we're what we're learning the feel of is what that feels like how it is simply to be present and a moment of that is what begins to allow for the stillness as i said before to shine forth and when we're Present when there's a presence with what's going on without all these veils of interpretation, more and more the conditions are present for deep understanding to arise. Because understanding is simply seeing what actually is, already is. And so when there's this stillness of mind that comes from our willingness to just be present without resistance or clinging, understanding arises, clear seeing arises of itself, because we're no longer blinded by our interpretations and assumptions. And what's so nice, actually, is that with the understanding also arises, actually it seems to be mingled, um, deep expression and sense of love and compassion, really the twin wings of the Buddhist teaching are that of wisdom or understanding and that of compassion and love. And Thich Nhat Hanh says, without understanding we are unable to love. And so with the arising of understanding, simply this clear seeing, love and compassion also begin to spring forth quite naturally. We're no longer, as we develop this energy of mindfulness, no longer so driven to avoid pain, seek out pleasure. We begin to get it that it's not what's happening that brings peace or absence of conflict, but it's our relationship to what's happening that makes all the difference. And so in this, as we no longer hide from pain, we're able to open to our own painful and difficult situations, physical pain, emotional pain, difficult situations in our life. It's when we can be with our own pain, that's when we're able to open to and be with the pain of others, because it doesn't trigger off fear of pain in ourself. We don't have to be afraid of it anymore. And so difficult situations in our life are no longer so in the way. It's no longer, I've got to get rid of this in order for my growth to continue. But actually, it's really true that the difficult situation, a sickness, uh, a difficult situation in life, grief, can actually serve as the source of our growth, as the um, catalyst for our healing, for our coming healing our sense of isolation and separation. And that's when we give mindful attention to the difficulty. Whereas when we are afraid or don't know to pay attention, the difficulty actually becomes the source of our sense of fragmentation. Simply when we don't remember to look. This, This is just a real, a little example. That's how a difficult situation can really turn around when we change our attitude. This is, well, this is not really difficult, just unpleasant. But I was on a, a couple of years ago on an Indian overnight train. And uh, in a compartment, I had a sleeping compartment that you share with, there's four people in it. And I was traveling alone, and I, like, three middle-aged Indian men were in the other three bunks. And you're just lying eye to eye. And then their whole families moved in. And I was really like, I want my privacy. And they just stare. I mean, it's not impolite to stare. In India, it's just whole different ways of relating to people. So physical proximity isn't considered rude. Lying there and staring at you isn't considered rude. To me, it's was like, get back. I just want my peace. And so I spent a lot of the night feeling kind of closed off, aversive, paranoid. It was definitely me and them, and I wanted them to leave. <laughs> and at some point, I kind of got it, what I was doing. And I changed it from me and them to, oh, here we are all together in this (laughs) compartment. You know, it's us. I just quit fighting, and I decided to be present instead of present in body and in mind, trying to really not be there. And the whole, I mean, there was no problem. We suddenly got chatty. They went out and bought me little snacks at the station. We ended up just having a great time the last couple of hours. And I really learned a lot about where separation and conflict and fragmentation comes from. And so, even a minor unpleasant incident can really transform into a way to heal ourselves from our sense of separation. Really, all I had to do was remember to be fully present. It didn't take anything else. And so, as we're more and more present, seeing more clearly what is without fighting it, The sense of connectedness, the sense of love, compassion is really, it starts to shine, spring forth from our heart naturally. It's not any longer a should, you know, I should be this loving person. It's not being compassionate out of guilt, because I have so much and they don't. But it's just a natural expression of, of who we really are. And I do want to emphasize that for most of us, this is a process. And it's not like we have a few moments of clear seeing and then all gone, we're just living in love and compassion and total understanding. It's a process. It means being willing to wake up and pay attention in this moment now. And being awake in this moment is only this moment. And now in this moment, it means waking up and paying attention in this moment. And that's all. It's quite simple. It's nothing so esoteric. The experience of total presence and mindfulness is not, you know, necessarily some big fireworks going off. It's easy to overlook. (laughs) But don't overlook it, because it's really important. And we'll all meet situations in our life, here, outside of here, that are like too painful, too difficult, to completely open to, be fully present with. And that's, I mean, that's fine. That's life. And that's not a cause for self-judging. Oh, God, you know, I blew it. I can't open to this. And it's not to force oneself. But that, too, is the truth of the moment right now. I just feel completely overwhelmed, and I can't, there doesn't seem to be the ability to be present and open right now. That's okay. But then all the moments that we are able to give direct attention, it just strengthens in, in us, in me, many things, but one thing it really strengthens is that equality in our heart of trust, of trust in our own experience, in beginning to know that our potential really is that we're much more than this kind of random bundle of sensations and flying thoughts and wacky emotions that sometimes, you know, is this it? It's these moments of real presence, of stillness that we each experience for ourselves, deepen that quality of trust, the commitment and the willingness and ability to open further, to meet further the next moment of our experience. Because what we know for ourselves, what we've experienced for ourselves, no one can come along and say, that's not true. I mean, they can come and say it, but we know it's true. No one can take that away from us. Just as no one can give it to us. I mean, you can't come along to me and say, here, have a moment of... Total reality, free from suffering. You know, no one can do that for someone else, and no one can take away what we know in our own hearts from our own experience. So I want to end with a short quotation from Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the Russian writer. He's writing about the um, day of liberation for people being liberated from the prison camps in Russia. Um, says, the day of liberation, as if it were possible to liberate anyone who hasn't first become liberated in their own heart. And it's also impossible to impinge on the freedom of anyone who's been liberated in their own heart. So, that's what we're doing, watching the breath and me pains. Let's just sit for a couple of minutes.